Welcome to the Remote Warfare Programme podcast. In this episode, we have a recording of a panel from the Conceptualising Remote Warfare Conference, which the Remote Warfare Programme held in collaboration with the University of Kent on the 28th of February and 1st of March. The conference pulled together a wide range of experts from the military, government, academia and civil society to discuss the past, present and future of remote warfare as well as the implications of this approach. We couldn't have organised a conference without the support of the Conflict Analysis Research Centre at the University of Kent and the British International Studies Association. If you like what you hear on this podcast, you can hear more panels in our upcoming episodes and you can read more depth in more depth about the topics in our upcoming book released in early 2020. For now, enjoy the podcast. Thank you very much. Okay, so for the next panel, we're going to be talking about the geographies of remote warfare. We have a very interesting panel again. Um, so we have Alex Holder, who will start out. He's a PhD researcher at the University of Liverpool. Then we have Joseph Ochapa, who is a major in the US Air Force. He's also undertaking a doctorate in philosophy at Oxford. Uh, we have Group Captain John Alexander, who is with the Royal Air Force Air Historical Branch. He's also undertaking a PhD, PhD at Cambridge. And then finally, we have Jenny Oberholzer, who is a defense analyst at RAND. Um, Again, you have 12 minutes, and I'll let you know when you have about two minutes left, so you can start to Hello. I am an interactional sociologist. Uh, I study interaction, and specifically, I'm concerned with the endogenous in situ methods of militarized drone operators. And with that in mind, what I'm hoping to do today is put forward some preliminary thoughts on the where of the militarized drone. By which I mean, I want to ask the following. Four drone operators engaged in the complex set of practices involved in their work, where is the action taking place? And how does their orientation to particular settings influence the character of their work? Uh, Using the transcript that is hopefully in front of you, uh, I'm hoping to empirically demonstrate that the wear of militarized drones is diffuse and multiple. So... What I want to do to get through that is I'm going to follow what I'll call the life of a description. Um, And I'm going to follow that as made by drone operators through three distinct settings, arguing that a description is made of one setting, it's negotiated in a second setting, and it is formalized for the purposes of action in a third setting. Now, as a starting point, I'm going to take a quote from Donna Haraway, where she's talking about the role of vision in modernity. Uh, She says... The eyes have been used to signify a perverse capacity to distance the knowing subject from everybody and everything in the interests of unfettered power. The eye of the ordinary primate like us can be endlessly enhanced, and vision in this technological feast becomes unregulated gluttony. All seems not just mythically about the god trick of seeing everything from nowhere, but to have put that myth into ordinary practice. Now, this god trick of seeing everything from nowhere amounts to an attempt to see everything without being seen oneself. And that's proved a popular concept in military studies, uh, particularly with reference to drones, which is probably unsurprising. Let's say, simplistically now, that the the apparatus of visual and communications technologies that, that make up the armed drone allow two things, with one being an unprecedentedly powerful capacity for surveillance, and the second being the ability to remove the person who manages that surveillance from harm's way. And it might seem that there's your god trick in good practice, 
But the, the point that Haraway is making with the God trick is that it's just that. It's a trick, an illusion on two counts, achieving neither omniscience nor nowhereness. Now, there's been a lot of work uh, focusing on what the, the drone can and cannot see. But what I want to do is look more closely at the possibility and practical experience of nowhereness. Because as it turns out, as a, as, as, as a person with a, with a body rooted firmly in the world ends up being very, very difficult to be nowhere. So that's, no, that's visible nowhere more so than in the documents surrounding the disastrous US drone-led strike in Uruzgan, Afghanistan in 2010, in which 15 civilians were killed. Now, that investigation was subject to two separate internal investigations, both of which are publicly available. And the 76-page transcript that accompanies those investigations presents all of the drone operator's talk, as well, every, as, well as everything that passes in or out of the drone crew's, drone crew's radios during that operation. And hopefully, there's a bit of it in front of you. And that bit presents a really specific kind of exchange, and it's one that pops up throughout. And essentially, these exchanges involve the drone operators seeing something on the ground, uh, collaboratively negotiating a description of that thing, and then passing that assessment onto Jaguar 25, who is the forward-deployed JTAC in this operation and is responsible for coordinating aircraft. What I want to do is take that... Oh, so in this particular one, they are engaged in describing the demographics of the individuals that they've been following through the desert, and they're in three vehicles. Uh, and what I want to do is follow the life of the descriptions they make of those individuals through our three settings. So the first setting is one that I can say the least about, uh, at least in an empirical sense, and that's the setting that's made available to the operators through the drone. And in this case, that would be the desert of central Afghanistan, as viewed from 12,000 feet in the air. This is where Haraway's endlessly enhanceable eye of the ordinary primate comes into play, and the operators are able to overcome the limited vision of their bodies and able to see things that they couldn't see otherwise without being physically present. Unfortunately, that world's not available to me. There is no video. Um, all that's available to me is the drone, oper drone operator's descriptions of that setting. Fortunately, the drone operators are a surveillance platform, and they're practically occupied with constantly providing descriptions of what it is that they can see. And as such, the first setting is for operators a resource for description. How those descriptions get produced involves the second setting. And that would be Creech Air Force Base in Nevada. So this is the physical location of their bodies, and it's where they occupy what Schutz would call the wide-awake world of daily life. Uh, there's a lot to be said about what goes on in Creech, Nevada, but what's really significant for me here is those interactions that the operators have that discuss the negotiation of descriptions of the first setting. So, up front, there's a few things to say about these interactions, with the first being they look remarkably ordinary. They are more or less face-to-face -face interactions. The sensor and the pilot sit next to each other. Uh, they don't have formalized structures, and they're very flexible in tone. The bones of it, really, is just this incessant description of the ground, and that description make a huge, makes up a huge portion of the operator's talk, and indeed their work in general. So at this point, I'll make a, a boring sort of social science -y point, which is 
that even the most esoteric and technical practices are constituted by social practices. And there's two upshots of that point. First, these social practices are a constituent part of the technical practices of being a drone operator. And second, that in doing this social work, they are continuing to do the practical work and difficult work of flying a drone or controlling a drone's cameras. In doing one, you do the other. So let's turn to this transcript. Um, in terms of what's going on right now, I'm not going to fill you in too much because I'm not sure it'll help. Uh, it's enough to note that at this point, the operators have been asked via the radio to provide more detail regarding a call that there are possible children aboard three vehicles they've been tracking for three hours. What I want to do is look at how they go about responding to that. So we can see at line one, marked in bold, the request. And what we can also see is that request doesn't receive a response until line eight. And what happens in between is this really interesting little exchange. In lines three and four, we see the sensor operator offer not one, but four redescriptions of the possible children. And that would be about 12, not toddlers, adolescents, and early teens. And at line six, the pilot agrees with that description, and specifically with the term adolescence. And then we see the response. At lines eight and nine, the call is made. Potential adolescence, we're thinking early teens. And from that point forward, Adolescent is the term used to describe what were previously possible children. And that little negotiation between the sensor and the pilot is where that change took place. Now, this is a description of one setting, or first setting, but it is not a description from that setting. The description was produced collaboratively in a face-to-face -face interaction between two people sitting in a box in Nevada. Producing descriptions for the operators is not a solitary act, it is a collaborative negotiation of what there is to be seen, and that is done in the context of their work together. The third thing I want to talk about uh, refers specifically to the act of passing those descriptions to the superior, and this final setting is of a different sort. In short, I would suggest that the drone operators are oriented to a communicative, discursive environment that's mediated by the communications technologies that allow them to interact with all of those other people involved in this strike. These discursive practices are best demonstrated in the form of the radio calls. The first thing to note is that this particular setting is odd and that it doesn't seem to constitute a place per se. That doesn't make it unfamiliar, however, and it certainly doesn't mean that we can't orient to it as a setting. It's quite natural, for example, to answer the question, where is Alex, by saying he's on the phone instead of saying he's standing in the corridor. In fact, to say standing in the corridor might be misleading. The interactions that take place in our discursive communicative setting are a sharp contrast to those that take place between operators. Um, these interactions are far more formalized in structure, and there are strict conventions regarding openings and closings. And we can see that pretty visibly Sorry. In line eight, <laughs> where the call signs are used to demonstrate who is talking, who is being spoken to, as well as including a request for confirmation that everything has been understood. How copy? It's also the case that the subject matter of these interactions is far more tightly constrained, and only certain fragments of the constant stream of descriptions produced by drone operators are passed into this setting. There is a strongly utilitarian sense to what takes place here. What's vital is that these calls are being made to the operator's superiors, to those responsible for the ultimate fate of the vehicles. 
And on those grounds, the pilot will only pass information that is deemed relevant to that eventuality. The sorts of decisions being made in this operation require formalised descriptions so as to produce an adequate level of certainty regarding the consequences of action that may be taken. The operator's negotiated descriptions must constitute adequate evidence to justify the use of lethal force. And it's the finality of those decisions in which the formalised descriptions of the third setting become significant. The term adolescent is now a functional description in a process that decides who lives and who dies. Uh, so what I've, what I've tried to do there is, is, is demonstrate using a really tiny piece of data that drone operators are oriented to three things at once. And I kept trying to write conclusions that would relate this to remote warfare. Uh, and I kept rewriting them. And they weren't working properly. And what I would say really is if we're talking about remote warfare and we're trying to conceptualize what it is, this is where it's happening. These are people doing it and living it. And that all of the, all of the practices, uh, all the diverse practices we're talking about in terms of remote warfare, there are people involved doing it practically, and they're worth looking at. Cheers. Thanks. Uh, my name is Joe Chapa. I'm a major in the United States Air Force and a doctoral student in philosophy at Oxford. It's a privilege to be here with you. Um, I am legally obligated to tell you that the views I express don't necessarily represent those of the US government. Uh, it's a legal obligation, but there's also something important in here, which is to say that the US government, that is, the taxpayers, have paid for my degree, and the government has empowered me to go out and develop conclusions that don't necessarily match those of the government, and then to share them with you. And I think there's actually something really encouraging about that. Uh, so um, I'm calling this shattering the distance paradigm. There's really a lot to say, but in 12 minutes, um, there's only so much I can do. So I'm going to have to move pretty quickly. Uh, I'm a pilot. Every good pilot story starts with this phrase. So there I was. Uh, in December, um, I went to the United States for a squadron activation ceremony of the US Air Force's newest MP9 Reaper squadron. Uh, and it wasn't this room, but it was a room that looked like this. And the members of that squadron took off the old patch that indicated they were but a mere detachment. And they put on the new patch signifying that they were a full-fledged squadron. And local news coverage had headlines like this, drone squadron activated. Two days later, on December 20th, I flew back into London Heathrow, except didn't make it to Heathrow. <laughs> because as you might have heard, drones ground flights at Heathrow. So I flew into uh, well, at Gatwick, so Heathrow was full. So we flew into Manchester, and I had a lovely train ride from there. Now what I would like to draw your attention to is the use of the word drone in both cases. This is very bizarre that this word drone seems to suggest everything from the $20 uh, quadcopter toy that you can get at Walmart up through the $16 million Reaper and all the way to the future autonomous weapon systems that we've been promised. Um, and, I, and I think we're asking this word to do far more than it should be allowed to do. Uh, so I think if we're going to understand remote weapons, and when I say remote warfare, I typically mean these kinds of aircraft, the Predator and Reaper. If we're going to understand these kinds of weapon systems, then we're going to have to do some work to distinguish them both from the quadcopter and from future autonomous weapon systems. And I'm going to take a very, very small step toward, uh, toward that aim today. So um, I, one of the difficulties with trying to do this is that uh, these weapons are what I call ontological orphans. Um, so the Air Force announced last year that it's going to produce the B-21. That's it on the far right. It's the latest, greatest bomber, stealth. Uh, we don't really know what it looks like. That's an artist rendition. But my point is, as an Air Force officer, I know what category that airplane belongs in. It's a strategic bomber. How do I know? Because I've got 100 years worth of strategic bombers to compare it to. So it's very easy for me to conceptualize that airplane. We could do the same thing with fighters. We had fighters for a long time. 
During the US war in Vietnam, there started to be these shred outs of different categories of fighters. But when the Air Force gives us an F-22, I know that's an air superiority fighter. When the, the Joint, um, Joint Strike Fighter Organization gives us the F-35, I know that's a multi-role fighter. So I have these robust conceptual categories. The histories that are available of the MQ-1, MQ-9, Predator and Reaper, would like us to believe that it should follow this trajectory back to something like vengeance weapons, you know, V-1 and V-2 during World War II. There were, there were experiments from um, U.S. Army Air Forces and U.S. Navy to remotely control explosive-laden uh, bombers to their targets uh, that didn't work very well. And then the fire bee drones in Vietnam, right? So there's this, there's this theme of a, a technological core identity to what these things are. And I think that's misleading. I think if we, if we focus on the, what unifies them with this history technologically, then we abstract from uh, what they do with respect to the mission. So, um, so I think that's a mistake, and I'd like to try to, um, to adjust that. So here's this long history of air power, about 100 years. And we can identify where these different um, shredouts started to occur. And all I want to suggest is I disagree with the sort of, there, there's a, there's a a line of thinking that says these airplanes are just like all the other airplanes. Um, and I disagree with that. I think there is something different. In 2001, when the Predator launched his first Hellfire missile on the opening night of the US war in Afghanistan, we got a new ontological category. And I think we should take that seriously. Now, the next step is to say, OK, if it's not exactly the same as the previous, um, previous weapon systems, then what's new and what's different? Uh, I think one way to approach this question is to recognize, actually, that there are multiple senses in which we could talk about distance and war. The physical and psychological distance have gotten a lot of press uh, in the ethics literature, and I think that's been helpful, that those two things come apart, right? The physical distance might be 7,000 miles, but the psychological distance might be much shorter. Um, I'm trying to develop uh, a, a sense of distance that applies to international relations that I don't have time to talk about today, uh, but I do want to talk about what I'm calling phrenetic distance, which is the distance of or pertaining to phronesis or human judgment or uh, practical wisdom. So that's the plan. So to do that, I'm going to talk just through a couple of historical cases. So consider US Army Air Forces, World War II. Um, the bombers were stationed in England, and then they flew over the horizon to go drop bombs somewhere else. In this nominal example, let's say it's 500 miles away. Uh, by 1944, uh, General Eaker was the commander of 8th Air Force. His headquarters was near Bushy Park. Um, and he would sort of send these bombers away to go do some stuff. And there were officers on board these bombers. Each uh, bomber had a pilot in command. And you would think that that pilot in command might be executing phronesis, human judgment, in the battle space. And I submit to you that, in fact, the pilot in command on those aircraft did have authority, but it was authority to do things like conduct evasive maneuvers, or decide whether to ditch in the ocean, or try to divert, or to decide whether they should try to get to a neutral country to land a, a broken airplane, or try to get back to home station. These were all the kinds of decisions that were in the pilot's purview. Uh, but my grandfather was a bombardier navigator on B-24s, and as he looked through the Norden bombsite, there was nothing on the ground that would cause him to change what the desired point of impact was. There was nothing on the ground that would cause him to change where the bombs should fall. Why? Because the determination as to where the bombs should fall was made back at Bushy Park with this massive planning staff of intelligence analysts and aerial photography and stuff like that. So in this case, there's this inversion where actually the physical distance between the target and the, and the human crews was a mere 10,000 feet, let's say, but the frenetic distance was actually uh, something like 500 miles. Okay, um, let's look at a new case. In 1998, I'm sure you're aware, but the Clinton administration uh, was aware that Osama bin Laden posed a threat to the United States and tried to target him in 1998 using cruise missiles. Uh, so there's an Aegis cruiser parked in international waters off the coast of Pakistan, and uh, they launched cruise missiles into Afghanistan to a target in coast that they believed was Osama bin Laden's location. Um, and as we now know uh, through other historical accounts, uh, bin Laden was on his way to coast, and he was with his uh, bodyguards and friends in the car. At one point, the car was stopped, and he said, where shall we go? Shall we go to coast, or shall we go to Kandahar? They voted. They decided on Kandahar. And so the car switched directions and went to Kandahar. But of course, there was no 
there was no way for the missile to know that, right? So the missile is going to go where it was, where it was told to go, and it's unable to respond to conditions on the ground. I raise this case because you might think that the physical distance was about 500 miles. That's the difference from coast to a uh, distance from coast to the uh, Aegis cruiser um, in the water. But uh, I think the frenetic distance might be different from that because if the shots are being called from the White House, then the frenetic distance might actually be 7,000 miles in this case. So all I'm trying to do is show that physical distance and frenetic distance tend to come apart. Um, so I, I, this is a notional example of an organizational chart. Don't worry too much. All I want to point out to you is that the air power chain of command goes all the way to a three star and then the land chain of command goes all the way to a three star and they share a mutual boss in common at the top. And I want to focus on what happens at the bottom of this chain of command. So you'll notice the pilot is a captain uh, and let's say the army company commander is also a captain and they both work for lieutenant colonel commanders. Uh, what I'd like to point out is the solid line versus the dotted line and this will make more sense after I tell this story. Um, this is a story about my friend Dan. He was a captain. I will call him Captain Dan. Uh, Dan was in a ground control station not unlike this one, and for about three weeks, Dan and his crew um, observed a high-value individual. Uh, the high-value individual in Afghanistan was um, responsible for an IED manufacturing ring. So, so they would manufacture homemade explosives, distribute the IEDs, and plant them uh, in the road, and then try to kill either coalition members or, um, or civilians. And so Dan's job was to watch this person over a long period of time, develop the patterns of life, and figure out the best way to strike him without causing any collateral damage. Now this was difficult because uh, the high-value individual knew that the coalition would like to target him. And so every day he would leave his house and get on his motorbike and drive about a mile to the north to the IED facility. But before he would do that, he would go to a yard near his house, and there were always kids playing soccer out there, and he would randomly select a kid, put the kid on the back of the motorbike, and then proceed a mile to the north, right? So this, the kid thinks that he's getting this you know, adventurous ride on a motorbike. In fact, to, to the degree that by the end of the three-week period, the kids would kind of elbow each other out of the way to get to the front of the queue because they thought they just got a motorbike out of it, a motorbike ride out of it, when in fact um, he's using them as, as human shields against a strike. So Dan watches this for three weeks. Dan shows up to work one day, and the intel analyst uh, tells him, hey, today's the day um, the, the ground force, in this case it was a special operations team, is going to target the HVI today. And so Dan asked the intel analyst, why does it have to be today? Why not yesterday? Why not tomorrow? Analyst didn't know. So then he called the JTAC, who you heard about in the last talk, the Joint Terminal Attack Controller, the air power advocate embedded with the ground force. And the JTAC didn't have the answer either. So Dan ends up calling his counterpart, the soft team commander, another captain. So this is now peer to peer on a secure phone. And Dan says, why does it have to be today? Why not yesterday? Why not tomorrow? And the best answer the soft team commander could give him uh, is that we've waited long enough. The time has come. And so Dan and his crew step to the ground control station. It looks something like that. And uh, and this is the middle of the night in, a, in the United States, and so the mission commander, the person responsible for the squadron in the middle of the night, called the squadron commander, the aforementioned lieutenant colonel. He throws on a flight suit, heads into work, stands behind Dan in this cockpit, and says, Dan, are you going to be able to take this shot today? And Dan said, no, sir, I don't think I'm going to be able to. If they could convince me that it has to be today, then maybe I could justify both the necessity and proportionality uh, considerations, which the ground force commander thinks are established, right? The ground force commander believes that this is a necessary and proportional strike. And Dan says, I just, I just can't come to that conclusion. I'm not going to be able to take the shot today. Squadron commander said, OK, stay in the seat, but tomorrow I'm swapping you out with someone else. I'm going to go find a pilot who's willing to take the shot because we have to get this guy. And so Dan finishes the sortie. For the first time in three weeks, the high-value individual does not come out of the house on that day. The next day, they moved Dan to a different sortie, and they brought a, a different pilot, and they briefed him in advance and asked him if he was willing to take the shot. He said yes. They brought him into the GCS. And on this particular day, the high-value individual left his house got on his bike, but did not put a kid on the back of the bike. So as Dan sort of anticipated, the HVI got complacent, and they took a clean shot against him during his mile-long transit. 
Now, what does that have to do with anything? Well, if we look back at the relationship, um, it is incredibly important to me that the, that the relationship between Dan and the soft team commander is a dotted line. So doctrinally, we call that a, a supporting command. The, the uh, Air Force is supporting the ground force, and the soft team is the supported command. And that means that the ground force commander can't give Dan orders. That's why we say that Dan is a pilot in command. He is the commander of the airplane, including his weapons. And so Dan has the ability now to exercise phronesis, to exercise human judgment in the battle space, and do what he believes is right, even when that, that happens to disagree with the person on the other end of the phone. Now, of note, you'll, you'll notice the solid line between Dan and his commander. The commander that night could have said, Dan, take the shot. And if the commander had done that, now Dan is in uniform code of military justice territory, right? Because now if he disobeys a lawful order, there could be legal consequences. But notice the commander didn't do that, right? The commander executed his own phronesis, in my opinion, and decided that he, he could find a way to strike the high-value target without violating Dan's conscience. Um, and I think there's something admirable about both of those moves. Okay, so if, uh, if physical distance is 7,000 miles, we could ask what is the frenetic distance um, for the Reaper crew. I think the frenetic distance is the same as all other combat aircraft, something like 10,000 feet, 12,000 feet in the case you heard in the previous talk. Um, now, what I'm not saying is that that means that all Reaper pilots have the virtue of phronesis. Um, Instead, what I think it should tell us is that all Reaper pilots probably have an obligation to cultivate the virtue of phronesis, right? The fact that they have the ability to execute virtue on the battlefield means that they probably should cultivate it, and I think many of them do. Um, so in closing, uh, I would like to, I, I opened by saying I'd like to distinguish remote weapons like Predator and Reaper from the quadcopter and, um, and autonomous weapons. So the, the distinction between the, the quadcopter and the Reaper is not just a fiscal one, it really is a professional one. Right? It doesn't take much professional aviation or, or warfighter training to shut down Gatwick with a $200 quadcopter. That's actually a pretty easy thing to do, as we've learned recently. Right? What Dan and his crew are doing takes much more um, professional training. Um, but I think more significantly, we can distinguish between the Reaper crew and future autonomous weapon systems in the following way. If we transition to autonomous weapon systems, you increase the frenetic distance. Right now, we have the ability for human crews, for pilots in command, to execute human judgment in the battle space at a frenetic distance of 10,000 feet. And if we move to autonomous weapons, we push that frenetic distance back to wherever the, the code was written, um, if you understand what I'm saying. So, so I think that's significant. Um, the other thing I will point to is uh, many people for years now have been concerned about proliferation and have been concerned about uh, the US especially, but also the RAF and whoever else had early remote weapons uh, to set a precedent that could be followed as a norm uh, by other countries. Um, and I, I think we might disagree about whether the US has done that at the national policy level. But at the individual warfighter level, I think you should be encouraged uh, that people have been setting a good example at the, at the individual warfighter level. Um, and, the, and we can discuss what that, uh, the implications of that on transparency in the Q&A, if you like. Um, I also think that there are deep questions here about virtue, and I don't have time to get into them. Uh, but if we can all agree that uh, Reaper pilots don't face the same kind of physical risks as um, you know, infantry marines or something, then that should lead us to ask questions about what kinds of virtue are appropriate or necessary for the Reaper crew. I'm happy to discuss that in the future also. Thank you. Okay, so I was asked to give a, uh, an, an historical uh, case study to put a lot of this discussion into historical perspective. Um, and so I look forward to your questions uh, uh, after this. But in an earlier age of austerity uh, and military overstretch, in the turmoil immediately after the First World War, the Secretary of State for War and Air, Winston Churchill, and his advisers, Hugh Trenchard and T.E. Lawrence, convinced the British government 
to rule mandate Iraq remotely through an Arab king and using the RAF, the Royal Air Force, for military control as an alternative to abandoning the mandate as unaffordable. Using aircraft would reduce the cost in blood and treasure and allow control without occupation, negating the need for large garrisons, punitive columns and vulnerable lines of communication. The policy of air control has been controversial ever since, often seen mainly as prescription bombing to control the civilian population. So recently an English literature scholar Priya Satya called air control a new form of imperial rule, invisible, barely existing on paper, designed for an increasingly anti-imperialist post-war world. Remember she's talking about something which existed almost 100 years ago. The crime was empire and air control was merely its most technologically advanced instrument. In the only book-length uh, study, the historian David Amici calls it technological imperialism. And the political scientist Toby Dodge, writing in late 2003, wrote of Britain's reliance on the despotic power of aeroplanes in Iraq. And at the time, the issue was bound up with um, the Royal Air Force's existence uh, as a newly formed independent service. Uh, and the head of the army, the chief of the Imperial General Staff, uh, Sir Henry Wilson, said he did not believe in Winston's ardent hopes of being able to govern Mesopotamia with hot air, aeroplanes and Arabs. So let's uh, look at the strategic context. So using military technology, machines rather than men, for colonial control uh, was not and is not new. Churchill himself wrote in 1899, in savage warfare in a flat country, the power of modern machinery is such that flesh and blood can scarcely prevail. And in fact, the first, use of, the first military use of aeroplanes was in colonial warfare uh, by the Italians in Libya in 1911, dropping hand grenades on an oasis used by both rebels and civilians. And Churchill, again himself as first Lord of the Admiralty in 1914, so before the First World War, commissioned a report to use aircraft to suppress Somaliland. Uh, in the First World War, air power was essential to what the historian Jonathan Bailey has called the modern system of warfare, transforming the linear battlefield of 1914, which would have been familiar to Napoleon and Wellington, into the three-dimensional all-arms battlefield recognisable now. And the British used aircraft um, away from the Western Front. So um, against the Zanussi in Egypt's Western Desert, in the Hejaz with T. Lawrence, uh, and, and late the, uh, Faisal, who became king of Iraq, um, and in the Darfur in, in Sudan in 1916. And after that, the, uh, the governor, Sir Reginald Wingate, actually proposed that air power was used for colonial control then. Aircraft were also used on the northwest frontier of India in 1916, and that use rolled straight into the third Afghan war, uh, when a single handy page four-engine bomber, which had set a, a, a record-breaking flight from London to Karachi, uh, bombed the royal palace, sending the ladies of the royal harem into the streets in terror, causing great stat not only great scandal, but also for the Afghan king to sue for peace. 
And uh, it's normally said in the history is the first use of air control. So the air force in charge of colonial control was in Somalia, sorry, Somali land uh, in 1919. Um, so after the First World War, uh, print, uh, the Prime Minister Lloyd George hinted he was going to disband the Royal Air Force. Um, the defence estimates of, of August 1919 directed that the British Empire would not be engaged in any great war for the next 10 years, the so-called 10 years rule. But it also directed that army and air forces were to police the empire, making utmost use of mechanical contrivances. And uh, to cut a long story short, uh, Trenchard uh, proposed that the air force was used for colonial control in 1919. He was supported by Trenchard. Um, they were planning doing this in Iraq when um, uh, they met opposition from the British Army. Henry Wilson um, thought the RAF was a wicked waste of money. Uh, but also uh, there was the great Shia revolt in Iraq uh, in 1920, which put things on, a, on hold. Um, and during that revolt, uh, almost 100,000 British and Indian troops faced 130,000 insurgents, many with modern weapons, uh, there were 2,300 British casualties, so that's wounded, killed and wounded, and they inflicted 8,500 casualties themselves. Uh, the Royal Air Force used four squadrons support, to support the army. They lost eight aircraft. They had 42 so badly damaged they didn't fly again. Um, and at the, at the height of the revolt, the British Army was employing 52 battalions, which was costing an estimated £30 million a year, which is about £1.5 billion a year now. Uh, but very soon afterwards, Churchill uh, convinced the cabinet um, uh, to hold a conference in Cairo uh, to make the Hashemite uh, Faisal king of Iraq and give the RAF military control, uh, reducing the garrison almost immediately to eight squadrons of aircraft uh, just nine battalions of infantry uh, and local level levies. So air power in Iraq was used in three different ways. The first um, was against uh, the Kurds in the north. Um, the second was against uh, Ikhwan or Wahhabi incursions from Saudi Arabia. And uh, the third uh, was in, in internal security in central southern Iraq. So the Kurdish rebellion looks like a, it's a pretty conventional uh, warfare. Um, it started in 1922 before the RAF took over. It was backed by the Turks, so uh, Ataturk's new Turkey, uh, who wanted the north of Iraq uh, back. Um, it forced an evacuation, a British evacuation from uh, Suleimania, uh, using these uh, Vickers uh, Vernons as transport aircraft. Um, there was some collateral, mainly the uh, Air Force was used to support the army, but there was some collateral damage. There was a, a village of Haria where 15 women and children were known to be killed. Um, when the Air Force took over in, in, in 1922, uh, the Air Commander, John Salmon, started an operation um, against uh, the Kurds using four of his eight squadrons. And again, this looks quite conventional. So you have two brigade columns, this is one of them, um, going into Kurdistan, saluted by, uh, supported by aircraft, doing reconnaissance, 
substituting for picketing, leaflet dropping, close air support uh, when required. Uh, they also evacuate casualties using these Vernon aircraft, some of which were converted to ambulances. Uh, and there's one, uh, the, the squadron commander was a guy called Arthur Harris, who many of you will know is Bomber Harris. He um, converted these to bombers. And there's one example where he writes of um, a village being pretty much dis destroyed and a third of its inhabitants killed. Now, I've yet to track Harris's statement with the Air Force report of exactly what happened, uh, but I'm sure he's not making it up. Um, but subsequently, when the Air Force, uh, and they, they operated from advanced landing grounds like this one near uh, Abil, uh, when the British moved into Kurdistan and got close to Sulaymaniyah, uh, they actually dropped leaflets, all of the locals left, they bombed uh, the town, destroyed uh, buildings, but without causing any casualties. And they got more sophisticated at this, so in the early 30s when they went back uh, into uh, Kurdistan to support the Iraqi army, um, then they had loudspeakers fitted to aircraft and whatever, as, as well as leaflets, in order to warn the civilian population. This is an Ara Ara Iraqi army uh, camp. The Y, the upside down Y you can <coughs> see there is a signal to the aircraft. Uh, the picket are basically saying, we're, we're okay, don't worry about, don't worry about us. So, um, operations against Kurdistan, pretty uh, conventional, although there's some bombing of, of, of villages. Uh, against the Wahhabis in the south, again, it's pretty conventional. Aircraft are great at patrolling an empty desert. Uh, the Royal Air Force have armoured cars as well. So between the two of them, they, they spot um, the Wahhabi raiders. They have special service officers who are basically Arabic-speaking officers on the ground. One of them is, uh, is a guy called John Glubb, um, who later goes on to command the Jordanian army. And between them, they um, hit these Arab uh, raiders. The Arabs are actually really good shots, so they lose a couple of aircraft as well. Um, but that, that causes uh, a negotiated peace between King Faisal of Iraq and Ibn Saud of, of Saudi Arabia, and the raids stop. Um, so internal security... So there were occasions when the civil authorities, remember this is a mandate, so the British are advising the local Iraqi government, there are occasions when the civil authorities called for aircraft to support them. There are five occasions from October to December 1922, three involving the use of munitions, and there are six in 1923, four involving the use of munitions. Uh, and at one of these, um, 40 aircraft are employed uh, to bomb um, a town, uh, uh, Samoa, uh, in central Iraq, where the local sheiks are basically refusing to um, obey the government. Uh, so 40 aircraft are, um, uh, are used, either over two days or two weeks, depending on which account one uh, believes, and 141 civilians are killed. Um, the British at the time are not very happy because they know it would look bad. Uh, they're also not very happy that they're basically enforcing the Iraqi government's uh, tax raising. Uh, and, about, and about the same time, this is the end of 1923, uh, you get a Labour government in the UK as well. So, so pretty much that prescription bombing in that mode stops. Um, there's another example in, uh, in, in 1924 too, there are 
1924, rather, there are two examples. One of them is here, uh, Chebesh. It's, it's um, in the marsh area of southern Iraq. Um, and this is, if you like, more, perhaps more the classic form. Leaflets are dropped. The sheikh leaves uh, his settlement, and incendiary bombs are dropped on his house and uh, possessions. Uh, and no one on the ground uh, is injured. Uh, okay, there's one of those in 1927, and there's one in 1928, and then it stops. And in any case, uh, Iraq becomes fully independent uh, in, in 1930, and the mandate officially finishes in 32. So, in conclusion, then very, very quickly, um, most of these operations, they're not the, the classic form of uh, what many would understand to be air control, of, of villages, miscreant villages. Uh, being bombed. They're actually combined uh, air operations with, with ground forces. Um, and the British regard it as a success. So they were spending 30 million in 1922. By 1925, they're spending 3.4 million. Those 52 battalions are reduced to nine in 1922 and to none after 1929. Air control is used in other territories, which I don't have time to go into. But in every territory, it's different depending on the political situation and the military uh, situation. And it's true as well that air control was a factor in the Royal Air Force's continued independence, um, but not the largest uh, factor. If, um, look at the numbers of, of aircraft used. There were eight squads initially in Iraq, going down to four. Uh, yet when uh, Lord Salisbury's committee uh, reformed the Royal Air Force in 1923, it was an air force of over 50 squadrons. So um, the numbers used in air control were not great. So look forward to your questions. There's a whole lot of things I haven't mentioned there, which I'm sure you'll be interested in. Legal, parliamentary scrutiny, press, use of proxies, and what happened next. So it's a couple of ideas for questions. Thank you very much. All right, uh, ladies and gentlemen, I'm a better storyteller than I am a lecturer, so I apologize if anything seems wildly incoherent. Never try to write your slide notes on an Air Baltic flight four hours before the event. Um, my name is Jenny Oberholzer. I work as a defense analyst in Washington, D.C., and uh, not to quote other people here, but please do not consider these views anything other than my own. They do not represent the position of my employer. So uh, don't blame them for anything that is incoherent or wild here. So I don't actually have to get in too deeply into the first two slides that I initially come up with because, quite frankly, Peter Lee covered it far better than I could. So uh, go read his book. Give him a shameless plug there. Um, but basically, intimacy and killing, we know that there's a, a really weird disconnect right now with the experience of what it means to be a drone pilot, how distant you are to the level of intimacy and, and the visual interaction with the person you are targeting. Um, all right. So, yes, the, the UCAV, the Unmanned Combat Air Vehicle or the Remotely Piloted Aircraft is different. It is inherently different, as, again, the Major said. So the, the time on target, the time you're watching your target is quite different to what other people are experiencing in aircraft. So. When my grandfather was a, a fighter pilot in World War II, he had very limited interaction with the people he was killing. Like, just sort of zipping by. Uh, he vaguely knew what the area around him looked like, but 
had no idea the the uh, level of interaction with the person he's shooting. It's not like he's watching the guy have dinner every night. Now, if you're engaging in RPA operations, you might be doing that. So you're watching a target, a high-value target, for hours on the, the short end, days, weeks, even months, depending on what you're looking at. And if you read interviews with a lot of these pilots or you just talk to people, you'll hear some really interesting things come out of this. The sense of invinci invincibility, um, you know you're unkillable, and often the words that will come out are godlike. That doesn't mean that you are unaware of what you're doing. There, there is this, this awareness of it when you see people lean into the turns of their aircraft or bracing for it, or again, as other people have said, sort of the, the waiting to exhale moment of firing on the target. Now, what does this mean in the context of a wider military? It's weird. I mean, these guys have an experience of warfare that is quite unlike what anyone else has, whether they're in the rest of the Air Force or if they're infantry on the ground. Now, if they're infantry on the ground, they will tell you, these guys are not engaged in war. I, you come back and tell me that you're engaged in warfare when you've seen your friend bleed out in front of you, when you feel someone's guts spill out on the ground, and when you literally are soaked in sweat. That's war. That's what they'll say. Uh, it also means qualifying for medals, qualifying for combat pay, danger pay, the possibility of death. Now, if you look at the military oaths that you take, or the Airmen's Creed, or, I don't know, the French Foreign Legion, there are words that are repeated. Uh, fulfilling the mission jusqu'à bout de ta vie, or um, like, even unto death. These are things that people say. These are oaths that you take when you're joining up with a lot of these military services. It also means not having to deal with normal life. You're not commuting to war unless you're in very specific circumstances and often those aren't really considered war, those are considered maybe uh, border actions, something like that. Uh, not having to deal with normal life. So it's not like you go into combat and then you go home to the, the PTA meeting or the mother's group. Uh, again, when my grandfather was a pilot in World War II, he went to war and then very long boat ride home. And even today with uh, guys I know on the ground as infantry, there's still, it, it's a much shorter commute than it used to be, but it's not a daily commute, right? You, you've got time on a plane, there's time to decompress. It's considerably less than it once was, but there was a period of time in between when you were engaged in combat and when you weren't. Except if you listen to the position of the United States government regarding action in Libya, that wasn't combat, right? No American lives were at risk, therefore what happened does not qualify. Uh, the, the UCAVs, the RPAs were flying, but no lives are at risk, doesn't qualify for medals, doesn't qualify for combat pay. And again, if you talk to people who are infantry or even who are possibly at risk of major air defense going up against them if they're, they're flying over a combat zone, it, it's not, right? Uh, there is something different. Now, why does this matter? I, a lot of this has to do with uh, proportionality in combat. If you talk about issues of just war, it, it doesn't really fit with previous experiences. Now, this gets weird again, because if you listen to people like uh, General Dave Deptula, in the, formerly of the United States Air Force, now retired, he will tell you that I don't care about fairness, this is war. Like, screw that, right? If I don't have to worry about flag-draped coffins coming home to Dover Air Force Base, 
I want to avoid that. I don't want to have families mourning their dead. I don't want airmen ending up in Landestuhl. I don't, I don't want people ending up at, at military hospitals after the fact. Now, if you've dealt with people coming back with injuries or dead, yeah, that, that's, that's a really fair point. Can you really look a family in the eye and tell them that I had the option of not having your son or daughter die in combat, but I chose not to take it because that wouldn't be fair? Now, if you talk to families, that, that's a perfectly valid point. Uh, but then you, you put it into the context of the, the Christian tradition of just war, pr proportionality, acknowledgement of non-combatants, avoidance of atrocities. It's really hard to be proportional if you can kill them and they can't kill you. Uh, or if you can kill many people and, again, you're never at risk. That makes a lot of sense. It's not just a Christian tradition, though. If you are familiar with Judaism or just uh, the book of Samuel at all, there's a moment where King David has this realization that the Ark of the Covenant is being housed in a tent while he has his own glorious space, and he'd very much like to honor the Ark of the Covenant by building an appropriate temple. This is before the building of the first temple. And in fact, a prophet flags him down and says, wait, you know, I, I've had a vision. Um, you have your role in society. Your role is to be a warrior and a conqueror. A warrior and a conqueror cannot also be a builder. That's a separate job. And then the, the temple gets left for Solomon. And also in, in other cultures, a, a number of indigenous societies in the United States and North America as a whole, there's this concept of going on the warpath. And this is not some ridiculous thing out of a cowboy movie. When you choose to go on the warpath, when you are making the active choice to engage in warfare, you are choosing to set aside certain elements of normal life, of normal activity, and you are living a completely different lifestyle. And if you go back again to earlier eras of war, that wasn't hard to do. You're removed from daily life. You are not commuting. You spend months, years away. And then when you come back home, there's this opportunity to both decompress and to atone for engaging in actions that are not normally engaged in. Killing people in daily life is generally considered to be murder. Uh, and killing people in the context of war, it's supposed to be different, right? So there are these stories of people taking months, years away from normal life in Europe when they come back after the Crusades, a holy war, not engaging in normal life in the church because they can't, they're still impure. And then when you get even closer to the modern era, there are these really interesting anecdotes from World War II, with even the RAF supposedly, and I don't know how true this is. I've only read it in a couple of master's theses and a couple of doctoral theses, and I'm assuming it's correct because it's cited. There are instances of people refusing to take communion before heading off into bombing runs. Now, if you are particularly cynical or, or really familiar with certain elements of religious doctrine, this might actually be seen as um, like perversely even more pure religiously, because you know you're going to engage in a religious act, and if you die in the process, no, in a sinful act, and if you choose to be shrieved of your sins before doing so, well, that's kind of pointless, right? You're going to go kill a whole bunch of people. Why should you consider yourself dying pure of sin before, beforehand if you get shot down? Uh, people would still refuse to do it. Now, there were instances of chaplains actually coming in and trying to explain that, no, really, it, it's totally fine. You can go for communion. We'll, we'll, we'll consider it perfectly fine. It's, it's all good. Uh, but when you get even closer to the modern era, you still run into these people who, having engaged in warfare, they still feel the urge, the need to take some time away and to atone for what they've done. So uh, there are instances of Vietnam veterans in the United States 
who still live kind of a, a hermit-like experience far away from society. Now, a lot of people integrated back in, right? A huge, vast majority. But there are still these instances of people who feel the need to atone and just remove themselves from society because they've done something that doesn't quite fit with how they see as necessary to behave as part of society. Again, it, this is there. There's vast works on moral injury. Uh, works of Bob Meager, Doug Pryor, and, and Jonathan Shea are all much better at covering it than I can. Now, why does this matter in a greater military context? Again. People are overstretched, they're overworked, and this is partially a practical issue. People are working very long shifts for days at a time, often in shift work, which means maybe one weekend in four you have a day off that lines up with the rest of society. You might barely see your friends or family, and if you get off at work at, say, what, three, six, seven in the morning, there's really nowhere to go. There's nowhere to decompress, there's really no chance to engage with the rest of the world. Not that you necessarily would want to, because again, you're commuting back from a war zone. If you need to step out, you're going to be relying on someone else in your unit or a relief pilot to take over your space. And that's like, would you really want to remove yourself from that because of the need to take a break, knowing that you're putting that on someone else? If you need psychological help, if you're at a particular level of clearance, you're going to need to report it. And that's not necessarily something people are going to want to do. It, it's because one, it might put you on profile and mean that you can no longer engage in the previous work that you've been doing, which means, again, someone else has to step in. Uh, if you need spiritual counseling, maybe there's a chaplain, maybe that chaplain happens to be cleared to the appropriate level where they're readily available to you and local. And uh, there are actually a number of them. Creature Air Force Space has a really nice chaplain's page. You can look them up. Their contact information is available. Um, and then there's this issue of, again, why it matters. In the Air Force context, if you look at more recent approaches to limiting the long-term impact of PTSD, moral injury, and whatnot, there's this requirement that you sort of rely on your fellows, the, the people around you, comrades, people who understand what you've been through and sort of a, a social mechanism for reducing that stress. It really only works if one, you can do it and you're not so overtaxed that you can't rely on them, and two, if they see you as a comrade in the first place. So yeah, your battle buddies sitting next to you in the room are going to see you and understand what you're going through every day because they're going through it too. But that also means they're going through it too. And maybe they're worse off than you are. Maybe you can't really rely on them for that stress relief because, well, you've already been on the job for 12 hours. Do you really want to spend another hour shooting the shit before you go home? Sorry for swearing. I'm from Boston. That's what we do. Um, thank you. Finally, people laugh. All right. So the other problem is that it really only works if other people in the military see you as being involved in that level of combat. Now, there is this really interesting connection with the people you're supporting on the ground. And often the the guys, the soft guys especially, they, they really respect and understand what it means to have a good person as their eyes in the sky. It's vital. And that's a really cool connection, but they're far away, right? Like, sure, you can talk to them on the secure comms, but it's not like you can go out for a beer after work altogether. Not that you can do that in a war zone, but hey. Um, but it's also one of those things where, again, the other guys on the ground who are no longer on the ground, the guys at the VFW, when you, you go out, they're going to say, hey, well, where did you serve? And as far as they're concerned, a lot of the time you didn't. Brilliant. Okay. So why does this matter? Well... 
again, this was long and rambling, but basically there's a, this really strange shift in the proportionality and the, the sense of intimacy with the killer and what it means long-term for the people involved without the recognition and support of other military personnel, it can be very hard for people to kind of feel like they fit in. Choosing to invest in these forces is a choice, right? 50% of newly trained Air Force pilots in the United States are going into these RPA programs. And there are good reasons for that. It's very important to an all-volunteer force to make sure that your people come home alive. But it's still very strange to have people engaging in activity that does not qualify as war, either in the eyes of their own uh, fellow military officers or non-commissioned, uh, in the eyes of their own military or the eyes of their own government. So if you have people engaging in what we would consider to be war, who are yet not actually engaged in war, there's really something to consider there. I have no idea what that means long term, but it's it's worth thinking through. Sorry for the rabble, and uh, hopefully I'll be more here when you give me questions.